Our focus today is on a single sublime sacred sentence of Scripture. It is the basis upon which our understanding of salvation is built. You might expect a significant verse like this to be found in Genesis or Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, maybe even Romans. But today we find ourselves in the slim three-chapter book of Habakkuk. We continue our 12-part sermon series entitled Major League, A Study of the Minor Prophets. And today I invite you to take your Bible, draw your sword, and turn to one of the least known prophets. His name is Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Habakkuk chapter 2, I want to read verse 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The prophet lived about 500 years before the coming of Christ. By the days of Habakkuk, the northern kingdom of Israel with its ten tribes were no more. The Assyrian Empire had already destroyed the northern kingdom. By the days of Habakkuk, even the Assyrian Empire was no more. The Babylonians had overtaken the Assyrians, and Babylon had emerged as the new superpower on the political playground. They were exerting great cruel force as they gobbled up nation after nation that surrounded the southern kingdom of Judah. When Habakkuk comes onto the scene, he is more concerned with his own people. So in chapter 1, he voices two complaints against God. The first complaint comes in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help, but you not listen? The prophet was fed up with how the people of God had been treating one another during his days in the southern kingdom of Judah. To use the words of Habakkuk, the people were committing destruction and violence, strife and conflict and perversion as they dealt with and treated one another. Habakkuk was fed up with that. He had been asking God to send a great revival. He'd been asking God to have a mighty move among his people. He'd been pleading with the Lord to do something, to intervene, to show up and to show off in his mighty power. He was wanting God to send a sweeping revival. And what followed is God's response. He said, Habakkuk, I'm about to do something that you did not see coming. I'm going to use the Babylonians to chastise and take captive my people in the southern kingdom of Judah. Friends, have you ever prayed for something, received an answer from God, and the answer you received was not the one you were expecting? This is Habakkuk. What God said is not what Habakkuk was expecting. This word from God did not soothe and calm the spirit of the prophet. No, it stirred his spirit up even more into a tizzy. The response of God from the first complaint sparked a second complaint from the prophet towards God. The second complaint comes in chapter 1, verse 12. Oh, Lord, you have appointed them 
to execute judgment over us? You have appointed them. The emphasis is on the word them. You have appointed them to execute judgment against us. They are terrible. They're cruel. They're immoral. They're unethical. They are brutal. They're a bunch of pagans. They are the Babylonians. Now, God, I realize that we may not be all that we're supposed to be here in the nice, quaint southern kingdom of Judah. But at least we're not as sinful as those Babylonians. They are wicked. How in the world are you going to use them, a crooked nation, to straighten us out? God, are, have you appointed them to execute judgment over us? It would seem as if Habakkuk is appalled at God. And in so many words... What God says in response to the second complaint is simply something like this. Yeah, but y'all should have known better. Realize he's speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah, so I use the word y'all. Y'all should have known better. I know God says that the Babylonians are barbaric. I get it. I understand. I see everything that's going on. My eyes are not blind to the wickedness of the world. But the Babylonians, they did not have God's law, God's promises, God's prophets. But you, Judah, you had all that. And you are disobeying the very law you claim to believe. When I thought about that statement, it hit me like a two-by-four between the eyes. I know that all sin is bad. Your sin, my sin, their sin, his sin, her sin. I mean, everybody's sin is bad. But the argument could be made that the sin of the saved is worse than the sin of the lost. Why? Because y'all should have known better. Y'all have God's word. You have his truth. We as the people of God, we have the word of God and we've disobeyed the word of God. We have the truth of God. We've defiled the truth of God. We have the spirit of God and we grieve the very spirit of God. In so many words, what God says to Habakkuk, I hear God say to me and to you, y'all should have known better. Because all sin is bad. But the sin of God's people could be evaluated as worse than the sin of the pagan lost people of this world. God says, listen, I know that the Babylonians are bad, but you guys have been deteriorating for decade after decade. You've been spiraling downward and spiraling out of control. It's not like God didn't have other tools at his disposal that he'd already utilized. He already threatened Judah with war and famine and pestilence. He had already given them prophetic preaching. In fact, for the last 40 years, the prophet named Jeremiah, who was a contemporary to Habakkuk, Jeremiah had been preaching for the last four decades, begging and pleading for the people of Judah to turn back to God with little success. There was some success but not much there was a little success but not a whole lot of success there was no sweeping revival and if the people weren't going to listen to Jeremiah that powerful preacher of 40 years if they weren't going to listen to Jeremiah then why would they listen to a man like Habakkuk 
What's remarkable is that nowhere in these three chapters do you get any indication that God gave Habakkuk the instruction to call the people to repent. Nowhere in those three chapters do you read that God says, well, just tell my people to repent. You almost get the idea that it's too far gone. Things are too messed up. The attack of the Babylonians is too inevitable. It's going to happen. The second complaint comes against the Lord when the prophet just simply says, how can you appoint them to execute judgment over us? Habakkuk chapter 2, God says, I want you to write down plainly on a tablet so that everybody can understand it, that the end will come. Even though it might linger, it will eventually arrive. We get to chapter 2, verse 4. That's our verse. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by faith. The he in that verse could be the king of Babylon. He is puffed up. He is drunk upon his own arrogance. It could also be a description of all the people of Babylon personified as one man. That every citizen of that Babylonian uh, empire, he is puffed up. The Babylonians were drunk on their own sophistication, on their own arrogance, on their own ability to conquer and subdue. And maybe what God is saying is that I realize the entire Babylonian empire is puffed up in their own arrogance. For their desire, it's not right. It's not true. It's not upright. But he compares the people of this world with the true people of God. But the righteous will live by faith. What flows from that verse in chapter 2 are five woes that God levels against the people of Babylon. It's an indictment against um, evil in general, but it's the indictment against the evil in particular of Babylon. Listen, God will not be mocked. He will not tolerate any treachery. He will not sweep any wickedness under the carpet. Payday will come someday upon all of the unrighteous. So he levels five woes, these uh, watch out statements. Watch out, woe to you because of your excess, because of your greed, because of your senseless slaughtering of other humanity, because of your immorality, because of your idolatry. The rest of chapter 2 consists of five woes. Ironically, Jesus uses the same mechanism in Matthew chapter 23 when he levels seven woes against the wicked teachers of the law and Pharisees of his day. In Matthew 23, Jesus levels seven watch-out statements. He levels seven woes. The number seven is the number of completion. So the, so the reality is, regardless of whether the wickedness comes from pagans living in Babylon or the wicked teachers of the law and Pharisees in the days of Jesus, Jesus is saying, watch out, woe to you because of all of your wickedness. What the Lord is saying to Habakkuk is, I'll take care of Babylon. Don't worry about them. I know how wicked they are. In fact, let me itemize the five woes. 
verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, verse 19. You got five of them right there. And God says, look, I know exactly what's going on in Babylon. Don't you worry about them. I will take care of them. But I'm going to use them. As crooked as they are, I'm going to use them to chastise and to take captive my people in Judah. The scene of Habakkuk is bleak. It really is quite gloomy. The circumstances are dire. And for much of it, they brought it on themselves. You know, the reality is that we're just as sinful and sometimes our circumstances look bleak and dire. And most of the time, would you not agree that we bring it on ourselves? It's our own sinful decisions. We've said before, it bears repeating, all of us are one step away from stupid, and sometimes we step into stupid every day and twice on Sunday, don't we? It's just a, it's a, it's a bad habit that we have. It's a sinful rebellion that's in our spirit. And sometimes, many times, all the time, those silly decisions, they bring consequences, and they can be dire, they can be bleak. The consequences can look pretty grim. What follows in chapter 3, the very last chapter of the book of Habakkuk, is what I think is a psalm or a song that he wrote for God's people. If your Bible's anything like mine, at the very heading of Habakkuk chapter 3, it says Habakkuk's prayer. It just might be his prayer, but I actually think it's a song that he put together for God's people, saying, look, It's inevitable that the Babylonians are going to attack us and overtake us. It's inevitable. But even even in the pain, we can offer praise unto the Lord. Even though we brought this on ourselves, our God will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. I think this is a song because of a couple of markers or indicators there in chapter 3. For starters, in verse 1, you come across that Hebrew word shiganoth. I don't have a clue what Shiganoth means. It's a musical term. Uh, Only musical directors know what Shiganoth means. It's a word that only Brett Fuller understands. Not very many people know what Shiganoth means. It probably has something to do with a triumphant tempo. What Habakkuk's saying from the outset is that, hey, when we go to sing... We're going to sing songs of celebration, even in the midst of gloomy circumstances. So we're going to sing, and he goes, on Shiganoth, whatever that means. You get to the end of the song, verse 19, and he gives a word of direction to the music director. He tells him to use stringed instruments. In other words, it's not a quiet song. It's one that has much accompaniment to it. It it brings about all types of stringed instruments. Also, throughout those 19 verses, on three occasions, you find the word selah. Usually, that word selah is a musical term. So when you take all that into consideration, I think that Habakkuk is writing a song. It's not just for himself. It, It may be a prayer, but it's not just a prayer for one single man. This is a prayer, it's a song, it's a psalm for the entire congregation. For us to sing this even in the midst of our pain. What does he ask for? Well, he asks for God to renew them this day. At the heart of Habakkuk is a request for revival. He also says, please remember your mercy 
in wrath. Lord, we understand that you have righteous wrath and holy hostility towards our sin. We've been defiant towards you. You are fed up with our sin. But Lord, in, it, in giving us your wrath, please remember your mercy. The bulk of the song is a trip down memory lane. And the prophet just reminds the people of how God's been faithful generation upon generation. When you get to the end of the song, verses 17 and following of Habakkuk chapter 3, you come to some of the familiar lines, lines that maybe you've heard of before from the book of Habakkuk. For the prophet declares that even though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, no olives in the crop, no food in the field, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will choose to rejoice in him, for the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like feet of a deer. He will enable me to climb to new heights. That even in the midst of uh, dire circumstances and bleak situations, and, and even in the midst of God's wrath being poured out justifiably so upon us, he is so gracious to us, he's so kind, that even though everything's destroyed, our God is still on his throne, and he enables us to be like deer that climb the mountains under new heights. That even as we go into captivity, we know that we will not be abandoned and we will not be alone. What Habakkuk predicts, it comes true. By the year 586 B.C., the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and they torched the city. They destroyed everything in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So that after 586 B.C., there were no buildings standing in the cities. The treasury had been plundered. The fields and farms had been decimated. The economy of Judah had been destroyed. The best and brightest that Judah had to offer had been carted off to Babylonian captivity. They stayed there for some 70 years. But God is bigger than the Babylonians. God is better than the Babylonians. In fact, history tells us that by the year 539 B.C., the Babylonians were no more. The Medes and Persians overtook the Babylonians. And in 539 B.C., God moved on the heart of the king of Persia, a man by the name of King Cyrus. He issued a decree declaring that all of Israel, all the people of Judah could go back home. They'd be released from their Babylonian captivity. They were given supplies to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem and refortify the city. So people like Ezra and Nehemiah, they went back after the Babylonian captivity and they did just that. They rebuilt the temple and refortified the city with sacred walls. God is faithful. Even in the midst of our disobedience, God is still faithful. He will not be mocked. He cannot be made fun of. He will not let the treacherous just go by as if the wicked are winning. No, God will enact justice. He can use anything at his disposal to straighten us out. And so here the prophet just simply says, in the midst of all of this, we can rejoice. Why do we rejoice? 
Because God is bigger than our problems. God is bigger than our predicament. God is bigger than our circumstances. God is bigger than our situation. God is bigger. He is still on his throne. Regardless of what happens to you, regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what happens in the circumstances of our life, God is bigger than all of that. So we can rejoice. To rejoice is a choice. You know that? You can choose to rejoice. You can choose to be glad. You can choose to trust the Lord. Rejoice is a choice. I'm not telling you just to grin and bear it. I'm not telling you just to slap a a smile across your face. I'm not saying just fake it till you make it. I'm not telling you just just put a grin on and bear it. However, I would say that for some of you, it would be a good idea if you tell your face that you're saved. Because I get to see your face each and every Sunday. And it might be a good idea for some of y'all just to inform your face that you're saved. But anyway, that's another story. That's another sermon for another day. But I'm not telling you just grin and bear it. No, what I'm telling you is that if, if you are in Christ, you can rejoice regardless of what's going on around you. Because rejoice is a choice. You can choose this day whom you will serve. You can choose this day. Are you going to rejoice or are you just going to look, well, like some of you look. I mean, are you going to rejoice in who God is and what he does for you and how he's so faithful and he never abandons you and he never leaves you? Now that brings us back to the key verse of Habakkuk. It's the single sublime sacred sentence of Holy Scripture. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. This is the key of the entire book. He says, see, he of this world is puffed up with arrogance. The people that are not in Christ, the people that are not of God, the people just of this world with a, with a very pagan worldview, they are puffed up with themselves. They are drunk upon their own arrogance and ignorance, by the way, because their desires are not upright. But God compares the people of this world to his people. Even if his people are disobedient people, he calls his people righteous. And he says the righteous will live. And the way they're going to live is through faith. So the righteous will live by faith. This is so fundamental to our understanding of salvation that the great 16th century Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, for me, this text of Habakkuk 2.4 is the key to the gate of paradise. This helps me understand how a person is saved. The righteous Live by faith. One of the great dilemmas of the Bible is how can a holy God declare guilty sinners innocent without jeopardizing his righteousness? That is a legitimate dilemma in the Bible. It's one of the greatest dilemmas in all the Bible. How can a loving God declare Guilty sinners, innocent, without jeopardizing his righteousness. God is just. He's righteous. 
So we can't just sweep sin under the carpet as if it never happened. If he were to just sweep sin under the carpet and arbitrarily tell humanity, you're forgiven, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about your sin. Don't worry about your disobedience. Ah, just forget it. If he were just to arbitrarily grant forgiveness, then he would no longer be righteous. In a moral universe, a just God must exert justice upon wrongdoing. We do live in a moral universe. I don't care what the most recent contemporary talking heads are trying to tell you. We do live in a moral universe. We live in a universe where there is right and where there is wrong. Now, people can debate where that definition of rightness and wrongness may originate and come from. We know that it all starts and stops with God. So we live in a moral universe. And since we live in a moral universe, a just God, which the Bible says God is just and righteous, a just God must exert justice against all wrongdoing. If he fails to do that, he's no longer righteous. But the flip side, if he just exerts justice and gives us what our sinful deeds deserve, which is condemnation in hell for all of eternity, if he does that, then he's no longer loving. Now, if he were to give us what our dirty deeds deserve, and if he were just to give us hell for all of eternity... He would be fair, but the Bible never claims God is fair. But the Bible routinely, repeatedly says God is love. So the Bible says God is love. So how can a loving God declare sinful, guilty sinners innocent without jeopardizing his justice and righteousness? How can God do that? How can God maintain a holy hatred towards your sin and all the while an unconditional love for you? How can God do that? I mean, I'll go one step further. God hates your sin more than you hate your sin. I know you hate other people's sin more than you hate your sin. I get it. I understand. But God hates your sin. He's got a holy hatred towards your sin, and justifiably so. How can he maintain a holy hatred towards your sin and an unconditional love for you? He's got a soft spot when it comes to you. So it's a great dilemma. How can a loving God declare guilty sinners innocent without jeopardizing his righteousness? Here Habakkuk gives us a tremendous key. He says, somehow, someway, God will declare us righteous. And the righteous will be able to live both now and forevermore. And the conduit through which they get that life is faith. So the righteous will live by faith. If you were to press Habakkuk and say, but Habakkuk, how's this going to happen? He would look at you and say, I don't know. I I don't know. It's a revelation without explanation. I mean, all God told me is that the righteous will live 
by faith. I don't know how he's going to do it, but somehow, someway, he's got to declare sinners righteous, sinners innocent. And, and when he declares them innocent, they will live. And I'm talking about great life. I'm talking about eternal life. They will live, and they'll live by faith. So Habakkuk puts together these three beautiful concepts, righteousness, life, and faith. For the righteous live by faith. And those who live by faith are declared righteous in God's sight. Let me chase a little rabbit here. Um, you do not become righteous. You're declared righteous. You, you can't become innocent. You either are or you're not. So here, Habakkuk says God is going to do something that declares guilty sinners righteous. And by that action, they will live. And they'll live by their faith. This process, theologically, is called justification. In its strictest sense, the theological term justification means this. It is the gracious act of God whereby he declares believing sinners as innocent and gives them perfect standing in Jesus Christ. That's justification. I'll say the definition one more time. Justification is the gracious act of God whereby he declares believing sinners innocent and gives us perfect standing in Jesus Christ. We are justified. I remember growing up in Sunday school coming across that word justified. I had a Sunday school teacher. I can't remember exactly how old I was. But I remember she said, take the word justified and break it into its syllables, just as if I'd, and add on, never sinned. Now, friends, I've been to college. I've been to seminary. By God's grace, I got my doctorate. I cannot find a better understanding of justified than what that Sunday school teacher told me when I was a boy. So if you are a Sunday school teacher and if you are training children and students, then God be praised. Bless you, faithful teacher. Bless you because of what you're doing, what you're pouring into students. I know you think those children ain't listening, but some of them are. And some of what you say actually is getting through. And this is true for children and students, maybe even some adults as well. But this understanding of justified is so foundational, it's so fundamental, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Now, once again, how does God declare me justified? How does God declare you justified? And the simple truth is this, because God is just, penalty for your sin has to be paid. And because God is loving, he made the penalty payment for you. That's how you're justified. You're justified because God is just. Penalty for your sin has to be paid. He cannot sweep it under the carpet. And because he's loving, he made the penalty payment for you. Habakkuk's not the first one to come up with this notion of the just shall live by faith. In fact, Moses said in Genesis chapter 15, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. You might remember the story. 
God told Father Abraham, go outside, look up and count the stars if you can. As numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, so your offspring shall be. Now, by now, Abraham is an old dude. I mean, he's thinking to himself, humanly speaking, how in the world am I going to uh, produce that many offspring? And my wife, I mean, she's a fine honey, but she's old. She's well beyond childbearing years. But Abraham believed God. That word belief and faith, Old Testament, New Testament, those are synonyms. To believe is to have faith. To have faith is to believe. And Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him. It was imputed to him. It was reckoned as belonging to him. Righteousness. It's not that Abraham was righteous in and of himself. But because of his belief in the very promise and word of God, then God declared upon him righteousness. That's as early as Genesis chapter 15, verse 3. But then there's John Piper, I'm sorry, John MacArthur. John MacArthur who says, the first gospel is really Isaiah chapter 53. I realize you may think to yourself, well, the first gospel, that's got to be the book of Matthew. And I understand. I'd probably say the very same thing too. But MacArthur says, no. The first gospel is found in Isaiah chapter 53. You get the idea that God will send the suffering servant and that he will die in our place. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That even the prophet Isaiah, who lived some 700 years before the coming of Christ, he looked forward into the future and said, Messiah will come. God will send himself wrapped in flesh. He will be the suffering servant of God Almighty. And he will be pierced for us. He'll be crushed for our transgressions. The the chastisement, the punishment that brings us peace with God will be squarely placed upon him. And somehow, some way, God will do a sweet, glorious swap and exchange that when the suffering servant dies, he will take upon himself the imputed sin of God's people. He will give in exchange the imputed righteousness of himself to God's people. And in that moment, those who have no faith will be granted faith, and the dead will come to life, and there'll be a great, sweet swap of salvation that takes place. Paul in Romans chapter 3 says what Isaiah looked forward to, what Habakkuk prophesied about, it happened on Calvary's hill. For in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. A righteousness, a declared innocence that God bestows upon people. That righteousness is from God. It is not from yourself. You do not save yourself. There's no way you can upgrade your salvation. There's no way you can enhance your salvation. There's no way you can save yourself. You can't do more good than bad to tip the scale in your favor. No, this declared innocence is from God. It's apart from law. It doesn't mean it's contrary to the law. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it at every point. What Paul is saying is that if you could save yourself by being obedient to the law, then there's no need for Jesus. But you can't be that good. You can't be that perfect. So a righteousness from God, it's apart from law, not contrary to law, but it's apart from the law. It's been made known 
And this righteousness, Paul says, is given through Jesus Christ to all who believe. You want to be declared righteous? It comes through Jesus Christ. And it's given to all who believe. Everybody who trusts, everybody who believes upon Jesus will be granted this declared righteousness. So what Habakkuk receives from Revelation without explanation is fleshed out more and more in the New Testament. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is repeated three times in the New Testament. We read it in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. It is so fundamental to our understanding of how are we saved. We are saved by the divine act of God. It is God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, and by his actions, our sin is imputed unto Jesus. And in exchange, the righteous innocent of Jesus is imputed or credited back to our account. So when God looks at us, as sinful as we are, he says, you're righteous. You're innocent. No longer condemned. Because your condemnation was paid for on that faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century when he who knew no sin became sin for us. Literally, Jesus endured our hell. He took the punishment that we deserve. God was not sweeping your sin under the carpet. God was heaping your sin upon the shoulders of Jesus. So your sin has been paid for. Everybody's sin has to be paid for, either by themselves in eternity in hell or paid by somebody else. And the only one who can pay for your sin is the God-man, Jesus Christ. I was hoping for a couple of amens. I got them at the 915 service, and I was hoping they'd sneak into the 1045 service as well. But the only way for you to be saved is through the God-man. It is Jesus who is completely God. Only God has the currency to pay your sin debt. Your sin debt is that big. Your sin debt is that bad. And only as a man can he serve as your substitute. So Jesus is the God-man who paid your condemnation. He paid your sin debt. He drank the holy hostility that God has towards your sin because he hates your sin. And by doing so, he maintained his righteousness and by making the payment himself, he preserved his love for you. He demonstrated his love for you in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Habakkuk says, God will do something. And we know what that something is. It's Calvary. It's Jesus dying on the cross and being raised on the third day. God will do something, and it will declare us righteous. And if we are declared righteous, we will live. We will live in spite of death-deserving sin. We will live in spite of of raunchy rebellion. We will live in spite of dire circumstances. We will live. We will live both now and forevermore. If you are in Christ, you will never die. Uh, excuse me, pastor. Excuse me there. Uh, point of contention right now. Uh, you said we'll never die, but I think everybody is appointed to die. Listen, friend, that's just called relocation. That's not really death. Death is separation from God. That is death. If you're in Christ, the moment you believe, 
that Jesus paid it all and all to him you owe, the moment you trust Jesus as your Savior, you receive eternal what? Eternal life. Only the righteous receive eternal life. If you are declared righteous, you'll be granted eternal life. If you've been granted eternal life, that must indicate you are the righteous of God. And the conduit through which that life is given to you is faith. Faith in what? Faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ. We have faith that Jesus down the cross for our sins to declare us righteous. He was placed in a borrowed grave. He stayed there on Friday and Saturday, even into Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, he got up to validate that his work is complete. And he conquered sin, death, and hell, and the grave for you and for me. We receive that by faith. It was John Piper who said faith is banking all our hope in God. That's faith. I'm banking all my hope in God. My hope is not in myself. My hope is not in my parents. My hope is not in my upbringing. My hope is not in my culture. My hope is not in my civilization. My hope is not in my actions. My hope is not, if I do more good than bad, it'll tip the scale in my favor. My hope is banking on God. Even if things look bleak, especially when things look bleak, faith is banking our hope in God. It was Warren Wiersbe who said, faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. That this faith that God gives us, it's more than belief, it leads to behavior. And we obey in spite of consequences, regardless of what the world says will be our consequences for obeying Christ. We will obey him. Why? Because it's because of Christ that we have life and are declared righteous in God's sight. It was Haddon Robinson who said, faith is taking God at his word. If God said it, that settles it. That's faith. Faith is taking God at his word. I've told you before, but it bears repeating that faith It's trusting God regardless of the outcome. You don't know how everything's going to turn out, but you trust God. That's faith. We do not have blind faith. We have biblical faith. We trust God regardless of the outcome. And Habakkuk promises us that the righteous, those declared by God, even though they're sinners, they'll be declared innocent. The righteous will live and will live by faith. In Christ, in Christ alone. This is why the Protestant reformers, they said that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's the bedrock of our understanding of salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It is not by our works, it's by his will. It's not by our merit, it's by his mercy. It's not by our goodness, it's by his grace that any of us are saved. So my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I wonder, is there anybody here, you've been through enough to know that Jesus is enough. 
the righteous shall live by faith. It was John R. W. Stott who said the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. If grace offers you innocence, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you forgiveness, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you eternal justification, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you a relationship with God and Jesus Christ, by faith you accept it. If grace offers you a home in heaven, by faith you accept it. The righteous live by faith. It's a single, sublime, sacred sentence of Scripture. This morning I wonder, are you righteous? And if you sit there and think to yourself, well, I think I'm doing quite well. I mean, I may not be perfect, but I think I'm doing as well as anybody else. Friend, you have not been listening to a thing I've been saying. Are you righteous? Your answer is, I'm only declared righteous in Jesus Christ. But yes, I'm righteous because he's innocent. And his perfection has been imputed unto me. And I stand in the perfect redemption of my Lord Jesus Christ. If you're you're righteous, then today I want you to live And I want you to live by faith. Listen, if you are righteous, before you leave today, I want you to do two things. Number one, I want you just to stop and thank God for your salvation. It starts and stops with him, by the way. I want you to thank God for your salvation. Secondly, if you are righteous, act like it. Live like it. Once again, I'm not saying that somehow you can earn your salvation. No, it is not We are righteous for salvation. We are righteous from salvation. It's because of the salvation that's given us in Jesus Christ that we're enabled to act right. So if you are righteous, praise God for it, act like it. Listen, if you're not righteous, today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day of your salvation. When you declare to God, I am a guilty sinner, no more excuses, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner. Deserving of your righteous wrath and your death, my death, spend all of eternity in hell. But today, Lord Jesus, I believe upon you and I trust, I bank fully on you that my hope is in you. Today you can go from no faith to faith. Today you can go from death unto life. Today you can go from being a raunchy, rebellious sinner to a righteous saint in the sight of God. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus... Today can be the day of your salvation. As soon as we start singing, I want you to come. Take a minister by the hand. I know I've said this before. I feel like I say it every Sunday in this series on the minor prophets. But it's so true. Habakkuk reminds us once again. Our sin is really that bad. But our God is really that good. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your kindness. Thank you for this great little sublime sacred sentence that the righteous will live by faith. Lord, today I pray that you help us 
to be declared righteous in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. And if we're not, today can be the day of salvation. If we are, help us to celebrate it and to live like it. Lord, help us to live this day by faith because you, you are our King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.